We are uh, continuing on in our series in Luke. As many of you know, we began Luke uh, several years ago, and we're just kind of making our way through it, and now we are, in a sense, on the home stretch. We are going to finish the book of Luke uh, by the end of this year. We'll have preached all 24 chapters in this book, and that's what we do here. Uh, We preach through books of the Bible. We call it expository preaching, where we go book through book, verse by verse, That way we're not picking what we only want to preach. We're not only picking certain topics, but we cover the full extent of God's word. And what God's word uh, says to us is what we want to preach and what we want to communicate. And so that is our method. And so we're in Luke chapter 20. The title is The God of the Living. And today we're going to look at the resurrection. Now, not necessarily the resurrection of Jesus, but we're going to speak about uh, what Jesus teaches on the resurrection. And the Bible clearly teaches that there is life after this life. It teaches that those who believe in Jesus Christ will be raised with Christ and live with him in the new heavens and new earth and spend all of eternity with God in perfect joy and pleasure. But those who reject Jesus Christ will uh, suffer eternal judgment. Now, every religion has a view of the afterlife. Every religion does, even the atheist. And all of them will seek to strive to minimize any type of judgment. Uh, You look at the atheist. They have what might be considered an annihilationist view, meaning when you die, you die. Uh, So this life is it. There is no life after this life, which means there are no real consequences to this life, which means do whatever you would like to do, satisfy every desire, don't hold back on anything, because this is your one time around this world, so squeeze it for all of its worth. That would be that type of view. There's the view of purgatory, which that's more of a Catholic view and some other views uh, will hold that, where uh, you do your best, and if there's a few sins that didn't get paid for uh, by Jesus or by whatever you believe in, that's okay. You'll spend some time in purgatory, pay off the remaining sins, and eventually make your way to be with God or whatever deity you believe in. There's the reincarnation view, which that view says, you know, you give it your best shot. You try to do the things that you're supposed to. This would be Buddhism, where you seek to have no desires. Um, And if you're able to succeed in that, you will then move into the desired afterlife. If not, you will be reincarnated, and then you will have another go around. And if that doesn't work, you'll be reincarnated again to have another go around. And so that is that view. And those are the, the most popular views. Now, today in our text, we're going to be looking at the resurrection. Uh, particularly, we're going to look um, just on Jesus' teaching on the resurrection and the certainty we have of the resurrection. Jesus is not going to specifically teach upon judgment, um, but he's going to speak that there is a resurrection. We can be certain of that. And he's going to help us understand the role that we have as believers in that resurrection and also how that affects us now today and so one thing we do here is we stand when we read god's word and so i want to encourage you to go ahead and stand the reason we stand is because god's word comes with his full authority comes inspired by the spirit and we do so to honor god and so we're going to read verse 27 to 40 if uh, that proves to be a little long feel free to sit uh, as we read verse 27 There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to him, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, but I pray that we would understand the certainty we have of the resurrection, that we would understand that you are the God of the living. You are the living God, and you have sent your son to conquer sin, death, and Satan, and all who believe in you will be raised to live with you. May we know that, God. God, give us eyes to see that, that you are a holy, holy God, and that you have made it possible for us to live with you through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be made holy and righteous like you. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, So if you were here with us last week, we saw that the Pharisees came and they questioned Jesus. They have done that several times, and now a new group a new group, a new group comes, and they ask Jesus a question. Now, this is called the Sadducees. So we'll start with, who are the Sadducees? Now, the Sadducees are a group smaller than the Pharisees, but they, like the Pharisees, are opponents of Jesus. Now, this group is a little bit unique. They they prioritize the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They prioritize that the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament, they don't really read or give much attention to. They deny the existence of angels, and they deny the resurrection, which is what you see in verse 28, or verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, then qualifying or giving us understanding, those who deny that there is a resurrection. A way for you to remember that, my wife has taught me this, it has never left my mind. They are sad, you see, because there is no resurrection. Get it? Sad, you see. They're sad, you see, because this life is it. It worked for me. It worked for her. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, well, someone else told it to you. So, um, so these were also the very first prosperity gospel preachers. I say this because they denied the resurrection, and they advocated that in this life, we need to accumulate everything that you can now. Therefore, they were very popular among the wealthy. And that makes sense. Again, if this is your only chance to go around this world, squeeze it for all of its worth, because when you die, you die. Now, the Sadducees were also considered rationalists. They strongly believed in reason. Now, we as Christians, we also believe in reason. We don't believe that that thinking and, and reason is against faith. 
However, they preferred human reason, reason rather than the wisdom of God's word. And so rather than letting the word of God be the lens in which they would see creation, in which they would understand the world, in which that they would understand who God is and what he has done for us, they rather looked at what they could see and what they could touch, and that determined what they would then believe in God's word. And so this is very popular today. It, it happens um, in, in many churches. It happens all throughout the world. It's called liberal theology. Many of you may have heard of this. If not, you might have not heard the name, but you're going to have heard the type of thinking. Liberal, liberal theology pits, picks bits and pieces of Scripture and says, well, we like this, we like this, I don't like this, so it pays attention to some, ignores the rest. It kind of treats God's Word like a buffet, Ever go to Sizzler? Lubies, that was in Oklahoma. Furs, any other good ones? Sizzler was really it, right? I mean, that was, that was the main place. Um, I think Pizza Hut, we'll do a lunch buffet. Now, what's cool about buffets is when you go, you're in total control, right? I mean, you get to choose what you want, but the best thing is you get to choose what you don't want. So, like, there's no vegetable section in buffets. I mean, there is, but, like, that one's always fully stocked. From the time it opens till it closes. I mean, there's some people who do that. Uh, but you, you make yourself to the meat section. Grab whatever you want. You grab whatever bread you want or all the bread that you want. It's like no Atkins there. And then the dessert section's the best, right? One dessert, two dessert, three. It doesn't matter. Take one. Try it out. You don't like it. Eat half of it. Get the next dessert. Um, you're in total control in the buffet because you're picking and choosing what you want. Now, that works great at Sizzler, but it doesn't work when we come to the Word of God. When we pick and when we choose what parts of Scripture we like, what parts of Scripture we'll believe, we then trade positions with God so that we become God. No longer do we believe that God's Word comes to us with full authority, without error in all truth. Rather, we say, I have now the authority to pick and choose the very things that I want to believe. And when we do that, we have a very distorted view of God, a very distorted view of redemption, and thus that is where the Sadducees are, and that is where many people are today. So the Sadducees, they're coming to Jesus, and they're going to stump him. Just like the Pharisees have tried, now they're going to take their shot at him. Now the argument that they use most likely has succeeded in defeating the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees have probably always said, we don't know an answer to that question. And they've just kind of let that tension. And so the Sadducees feel quite confident about coming to Jesus. And if they defeat Jesus, they will thus again defeat the Pharisees. And so what they're going to do is they're going to give an absurd argument. Now the argument is based upon a woman whose husband dies. Now in Deuteronomy, we read about the Leveret Law. Now, this is a law that says if a husband dies, the brother of that husband, her brother-in-law, will marry her in order to carry, produce children and carry on the brother's name. And so there's a lot of grace built into this. Um, and so they come and they say, well, let's put together a situation here. Let's imagine that you have a wife and the brother dies or the husband dies. So brother one comes. Now, the argument would have worked if there was just one or two brothers, but they want to show the absurdity of what they believe is the resurrection. So they got seven brothers. Brother one dies. Brother two dies. Brother three dies. Do you know by the time you get to brother four and five, they're scared? Because they're looking at this wedding as their funeral. 
Now, that's not how people looked at it. Well, that's how some people look at it today. But they literally were thinking, man, four, five. You know the sixth brother, the seventh brother. They were cringing at those vows till death do us part. Um, so this is their argument showing. And then in verse 33, they say, okay, so Jesus, we know this is absurd, but it could happen. Like, it could. So who's, whose wife would she be? In the resurrection, that's what they ask in verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? So here's the logic. The Sadducees believe that if, the res- that if there is a resurrection, it would have to be extremely similar to this life. Meaning, if we have puppies, and we milk cows, and we're given away in marriage, then in the next life, in the resurrection, there will be puppies, we will milk cows, and we will have resurrection. So there's marriage here, so obviously there will be marriage there as well. They're trying to understand the world not through God's word, but through their own reason, through their own experience. And because they cannot make sense which husband would be hers, there's no resurrection. It can't be. It doesn't make logical sense to us, therefore we, we rule it out. If I don't understand it or if I don't like it, I choose not to believe it. And we see this today. We see it all around. There's many people who, who uh, ignore the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, on marriage and divorce, on, mutton, on money, on gluttony, on authority, on so many topics as we go throughout the Bible. They say, well, we don't like this one. We think times have changed. God's word may have been right then, but it's different now. You'll hear all the different reasons, but people are choosing to believe what they will and what they not based upon how they feel. This is what the Sadducees are doing. The resurrection doesn't make sense, therefore we'll choose to ignore it. Now Jesus is going to respond, and uh, there's five things at least that he teaches here. Number one. Resurrection life is for those who believe in Jesus. So we begin in verse 35 where he says, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So is Jesus saying that only certain people are saved by works, that we have to be worthy to be saved and to be resurrected? If this was our only portion of Scripture that talked about salvation and talked about resurrection, we might believe that. But what we know is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we know as we look at the full amount of Scripture that, no, we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. One of the clearest teachings of that would be like Ephesians 2.8, which many of you, I know, know. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not, the, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we know that we're saved by grace. Now Paul, one of the New Testament writers, will often say things in his prayers, like we pray that God makes you worthy of his calling. But then in other parts of scripture where Paul writes, he also will say, but we know that our being made worthy is only possible by your grace, God. So he's saying, God, we know that we're saved by grace, and if we're to live in a way that honors you, is worthy of what you have done, it'll also only be by grace. One portion of scripture that says that would be like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes, we always pray for you. This again, he's praying for the church. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work. How? Of faith by his power. 
So it's always by his power. So when we read that those who are made worthy, we're not to think that there's a select few who work hard enough. No, we're all saved by grace, and it's only by God's grace and his power that his spirit continues to transform us that thus we be made worthy of his resurrection or of the resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel, is that we don't obtain this new heavens and new earth, this resurrection by our own works. For if that was the case, none of us would make it. But it's all by the grace of God. So the first thing we understand is resurrection life is for those who believe in Jesus. Secondly, resurrection life is different than this life. It's not the same. Just because we, uh, we have puppies, milk cows, and are given away in marriage, doesn't necessarily we do those things there. Now there will be puppies, we know that, right? There will not be cats. We talked about that last week. We know. Um, if you know, we, we're dog people. We really love dogs. Um, but Jesus does make a distinction. Look at verses 34 and 35. He says, verse 34, um, the sons of this age. So he's referring to, to people, not any particular people, sons of this age. Everyone who lives on this earth. They're given away in marriage. But now look at verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to, to that age, to the resurrection of eternal life with God, to, to that age, and he then says in verse 35, um, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. We, he doesn't tell us all the differences, but we're just told there's a distinction. Earth 1 is different from earth 2, the new heavens and new earth. There will be distinctions. Now there will be continuity for sure, we can make arguments on that as we go throughout Scripture, but there are differences. We marry in this age, we are not given in marriage in the next age. Now, we can make many reasons why. Uh, one of the best arguments that, uh, that I think would be given, that Jesus doesn't use because he uses another argument, but one of the, the arguments is that marriage is a sign that is given in this earth for the purpose of showing people Jesus' love for his bride, the church. So marriage is temporary because marriage points to the true, eternal marriage between Christ and the church. Which is why there is no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. Because marriage is an earthly thing that is primarily meant to reveal the gospel of Jesus and his love to the church. Now that's not the argument that he uses, but he could have used that. But God, Jesus, uses a different argument, and in verse 36, he says why there will be no, why there'll be no marriage in heaven. Because the next point, resurrection life is forever. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, for, so the reason for gives us a reason. Here's the reason why there's no marriage. They cannot die anymore. There's no death in the new heavens and new earth. One of the reasons for marriage is the perpetuation of the human race. But in the resurrection, the new heavens and new earth, there will be no death, thus there is no marriage. We know in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I used this in, in a, a funeral that we did just the other week. We read that death enters the world through sin. And it spreads to all people because we are all sinful. But when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, he dies so that we could be forgiven, made holy, made righteous, so that when we are gathered with him to live forever with him, there will be no death, because death will have been defeated. Isn't that good news? 
Like the new heavens and earth, there is no death as we look forward. And this is what we see throughout the teaching of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, one of the probably the clearest teachings on the fact that there is no death in the new heavens and new earth might be found in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50 to 57, which I believe is up on the screen. And I just want you to follow the logic of this verse. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see is that there is a day coming when that trumpet blows and that all who have not died, because we have not fallen asleep because Christ returns, will be made imperishable, made immortal at that sense. Those who have died will be made imperishable, made immortal, and that we will live with God forever. So death is defeated right now, but when Jesus comes, it will be completely swallowed up. So it's defeated. We know it's defeated, but we still feel the effects of it in this earth. But there's a day coming when that death will be completely swallowed up so that no believer will ever taste death again. And that is when Christ returns. What that means is that in the resurrection, there is no disease. There is no cancer. There is no AIDS. There is no Parkinson's. There is no dementia. There is no organ failure. There is no arthritis. There is no sciatic nerve problems. There is no arthritis. There's no heart problems. There's no stiffness of bones. There's no pain. When you get out of bed, there's no hairs that will turn gray. There'll be no prosthetics. There'll be no wigs, glasses, or contacts. Contacts. There'll be no canes, walkers. There will be no bitterness. There'll be no lying. There'll be no anger. There'll be no pain. There'll be no persecution. There'll be no tribulation because all the effects of sin will be gone. That's the good news of the new heavens and new earth. That is the teaching of the Bible. It's because of sin we have these things like death and all of that in this earth. But all of that will be swallowed up. And we'll all be made holy like Jesus in the new heavens and new earth so that there will be no sin or effect of sin to ever, ever come into existence again in the new heavens and new earth. That's the teaching of Scripture that we have. Isn't that good news? Like That's the gospel. He saves us, not so we go to an improved version of this and we redo the whole thing. It's a complete transformation. This is continuity. It's this complete transformation. God's kingdom dwells and we are in his presence forever. Now what's incredible is that Jesus doesn't stop there. I mean, that would be cool. He says, we're immortal. That's why there's no marriage. But he doesn't stop there because what's even more incredible is the role that we have as in in immortality with God. And that brings us to the next point. Resurrection life is about being in God's family forever. See, the Sadducees are still focused on on this life and this family. They're saying, well, if we're married here, then surely there's marriage there. 
And many, 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 many people misunderstand greatly about the resurrection. Now, there's things that we don't completely know, but there's clear teaching in Scripture that we would understand a lot of things. But many people, and it's been taught, I've heard it in churches, that they think that the new heavens and new earth we will have, when we are there, we'll have our own private beach condos with our own, fa- with our own families. Remember, because God's building us all a house, right? Don't worry, God, Jesus left to go build you a house. And your house, it could be on the beach. Could be an island. How much faith do you have? I mean, that's, that's the whole message, right? And we buy into that thinking, wow, Jesus is, is going to build us. And so when we think that, what's our goal? I can't wait to be reunited with my family members who have died previously before me. So all of a sudden, we make the new heavens and new earth about my home, my family, what I will do there. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. Now, certainly it will be a great joy to be reunited with those who have gone before us. But the teaching of Scripture is not that we're going to have our own house, but that we're going to go be in God's house and live with Him forever. See, we're not saved that we'd have our own houses and do our own thing. We are saved so that we um, will be with God. Look at verse 36. At the end of verse 36, Jesus gives another reason. Okay, you're immortal, which is why there is no more marriage. But there's another reason. It's because we're all family. You're sons of God, sons of the resurrection. That's what we see here. In the new heavens and new earth, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ because we're sons of God. If we go all the way back to Genesis and we read about um, God telling Abraham to leave his land, to go to a new land, God is, is literally telling Abraham to leave your inheritance. Now, where do inheritances come from? This is interaction. Where do inheritance come from? Where does the son get his inheritance? So God comes to Abraham, leave it. Leave your land, leave everything. What's the point? I'm going to give you another land. I'm going to give you an inheritance. And who gives the inheritances? Well, specifically the fathers, right? So what role is now God taking with Abraham? He's taking father. And so now his child he will give an inheritance to. And this is validated. Like you say, well, that's, that's a fancy way of reading scripture. Hebrews chapter eleven eight 8 says, Abram left the land in order to receive an inheritance from God, from his father. The Bible says that we were created to live with man. But why do we, that, that man was created to live with God? But we don't. Why? Because of sin. Sin is what has separated us. It is what has corrupted us through and through. This is why Jesus comes. He comes and dies on the cross so that we might be forgiven, made new, and adopted into God's family. You see, many of you know, my wife and I, right about four years ago, we've been here four and a half years, so in kind of the beginning of our time here, we went to Thailand to go get Caleb, our son. Now, when we returned and we landed in SeaTac, we did not bring Caleb, uh, you know, off of the tarmac and, and into SeaTac and say, you know, we're, we're glad that we brought you here to America. Have a, a really good life, and we'll see you later. And we walk off. Like, that, that was not what we did. That would be crazy. Like, so some of the things that we do, we, we go through interviews. We, um, 
there's money that is paid uh, in the, all the processing of fees and stuff. There is interviews. There's testimonies. There's background checks. My wife filled out, my wife filled out stacks and stacks of paper. She was amazing at that. Now, why did we do that? It was all part of the plan of adoption. Not so we'd bring him here and leave him, but so he'd now be brought into our family, and he now possesses all that we possess. He's made equal to that of our other children, and he has all that we have. That's what adoption is, and that's what we have in Scripture. Where the plan of adoption is, yes, beginning then with Abraham, we see God creating a people, which culminates in Jesus coming and dying on the cross so that we could be saved, forgiven, made like him not so then great we're raised or we have one day resurrection we go live on an island but that we live with god in his house as his children experiencing all the blessings of god forever that's the certainty we have in scripture and that's what jesus is driving home here so many be revelation 21 3 behold the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the new heavens and new earth. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, why did the Sadducees miss this? How have they misunderstood the resurrection? Were they almost on the right track? Like, would they just miss it by a degree? Was it just a word that they twisted if we look at verses 37 and 38, we see why they misunderstood the teaching on the resurrection. Verse 37, Jesus refers to a burning bush. If you look at that, Jesus says, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed this, showed in the passage about the bush. Now, he doesn't say Exodus chapter 3, 2, verse 6, or 2 through 6. Do you know why he doesn't do that? there's no chapter numbers and verse numbers back then. So Jesus refers to the context of the passage. He says, remember the burning bush? Yes, we remember the burning bush. Now what's interesting, Jesus refers to the Pentateuch, a book in the Pentateuch, the first five books. One of the books, the Sadducees would say, yeah, we believe this book. He doesn't refer to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which clearly teaches on the resurrection. Because the Sadducees would just say, well, yeah, we don't believe in that passage. That one's not inspired. He says, okay, you, you want to play this game? Let's go to Exodus. You remember Moses, the guy that you like? What does he say in chapter 3, verse 2, or at the burning bush scenario? So what's the point of referring to this passage? Well, let's look at verse um, 37 again. In the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord of God, the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's the point? These people lived 2,000 years prior to this point in history where Jesus is speaking. The point is that God is still their God today. They are not dead. They are with God. God is the God of the living. They're not a heap of bones never to be brought back. They're not just dust somewhere, but they are with God now. And this is proven by verse 38. Look at that. Now, he... God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The point is, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, God is their God. God's not the God of, of dead people. He's the God of the living, meaning all who believe in him will forever live with God. 
So the reason the Sadducees do not understand the resurrection is because they do not know God. They have come to Scripture to understand things on their terms. They have come to Scripture to understand life the way they want to understand life. They have not come and said, God, we want to know you. God, reveal to us your word, your plan. But they said, no, we have an agenda. We don't think there's a resurrection. And then they read it that way, and thus they ignored God. And they missed it. They didn't miss it. They believed the truth. They missed everything. Because they don't even understand who God is. This is a lesson to us. There's a warning here. We can know Scripture. The Sadducees knew the first five books. They had lots of it memorized. Maybe all of it memorized. We can know the Bible, but we can miss God. If we're not coming humbly before God. And we say, God, we want to know you. Not the way I want to know you, but I want to know you the way you have revealed yourself and so the point is resurrection life is possible because our god is the god of the living when we come to the bible we see a god who has power over life and death we when we enter into the bible we see a god who speaks life into nothing isn't that amazing genesis 1 when we come into the Bible, we see a God who holds the cosmos in his hand. We see a God who rules on a throne over all creation. We see a God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that all who believe in him would not be destined for judgment, but for life with him. When we come to the Bible, we see a God who has conquered sin, death, and Satan. In the Bible, we see a God who graciously adopts us into his family forever. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. That's who we worship. That's what the baptisms are testifying about. That's who Rich stands here and testifies. That's the God that I believe in. And that's the God that then Paul will stand and in Philippians 1.21 say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What? To die is gain. Why is death gain, Paul? Because death is not the end. It just takes me to the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? So is that positive thinking? No. That's built upon the truth of Scripture, proven ultimately by the sending of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that death has been disarmed, the sting has been removed, and it has been defeated so that we who believe in God would have certainty of the resurrection. You see this? As Christians, this is our hope. I mean, think about this. This is our hope. In the world, our hope is not world peace. It's not the government. It's not our jobs. It's not our marriages. It's not our bank accounts. It's not our health. It's not our possessions. You know all those things can be gone, right? How do we know that? Because of recent events. Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma will show us. Man, when, when God breathes, hurricanes are formed, and there is nothing that we can build or do that can, that can resist that. So we know that we can trust in these things, but it's like trusting in a bucket with holes in it. It will not hold anything. But as Christians, our hope is in Jesus Christ so that we live through this life. We're living not just for this life, but for the resurrection because we know everything can be taken here, but nothing can be taken there. And this is what we see all throughout Scripture. In fact, Hebrews 11 documents it. Hebrews 11 looks at men in the Old Testament, men and women, and it documents their faith and their hope. It tells us Abraham left everything to go to a new land because of the hope he had in God. He sacrificed his 
was willing to sacrifice his son for the hope that he had in God. Moses left all the riches, all the comforts, everything he had on this earth. Why? So he could live in a wilderness because of the hope he had in God. At the end of the chapter, we read that believers are willing to be stoned, killed, sawn in two, and tortured. Why? Because they have hope that they had in God. They knew this life wasn't it. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, it says the reason these people risked their lives and gave everything is because they desired a better country, a city built by God, the new heavens, the new earth where God dwells. That was their desire. That's what their hopes were set on. It was on the resurrection. Now just think about how that transforms everything that we do here. It transforms the way we view our jobs, the way we view our possessions, the way we view, view our bank accounts. So it transforms all that we put our hope into, understanding, okay, these are good. These aren't wrong, but these are not it. These are not the final things. These are things that God gives us, blesses us, so that we could use them for the expanding of the kingdom, because that's one day where we will live eternally in the kingdom of God. It's this hope when we come to the New Testament, we see, especially in the book of Acts, which documents it, the church goes out planting churches, preaching the gospel, sending merch, sending missionaries in the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, sending them at times to their death, not because they had more radical faith than us, more potent faith than us, not because they had something we don't, but because they had the very same hope and the very same faith that we have today based upon Jesus Christ. That's why today we can say we're to go out into our neighborhoods, out across this world, and we're going to be speaking more about mission trips as we go forward. In fact, next week is going to be fun. Peggy and Donna are going to speak about their time in Poland, and we're going to talk about our future as we begin looking at more mission trips also in this world, in this church, in this world. Um, so I, I was tempted today in the writing of this. It's like, okay, I can give you just a whole bunch of like down-to-earth, everyday applications of how that works. But it's kind of different for all of us. How does this look living in the resurrection? How does this look living in light of the resurrection? And so what I want to do is I want to read a passage, and then I just want us to, to go into prayer, where we just say, God, am I living in light of the resurrection? Am I living in light of the truth that you are the God of the living? Am I living like this life is it? Or do I understand with certainty that you sent your son to die so that by belief in him and his resurrection, just as he rose, we are guaranteed to rise also. And so I want to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. I don't remember if it's in your bulletin, uh, but mark it down. Go read this later. I just want you to think about the certainty, the hope that this passage gives us. This is Peter now writing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a living hope. Now there's direction to this living hope. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Where is it kept? Kept in heaven for you. Who guards it? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last time. So here Peter's writing. He's like, look, we have now the hope of the resurrection. If Jesus is raised, we are raised. We have an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And it is not going anywhere, and neither are you, because God does. Isn't that amazing? That's the certainty that we have. It doesn't rest upon your strength, my strength, your determination, my determination, our efforts. It determined. It is determined by the very grace and power of God who works in us and through us by his spirit. And so as we close, I just want to say, are we living in light of this? And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're sitting there going, okay, this is, this is interesting stuff. I'd love to talk to you. There's many other people who would love to talk to you. But, but I'd ask you to consider, what are you living for? I mean, just the recent events, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, their testimonies that this earth, there's nothing here that we can trust in. There's nothing here that promises us eternal life. But there is one who does. And it is God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to believe in him today. And if you are here and you have believed in Jesus Christ, what, what I just want us to do is spend a few moments. The team's going to come up, and, and we're going to go into um, to a few songs. But let's, just, let's just spend some time praying. Am I living this way, God? And, and reveal to me ways. If I'm not, how can I? What would you have me do? And let that not be a prayer that we isolate in these walls. But I want to encourage you, as, as we go out, let us do this as families, as individuals. And we need to think through this as a church also. How are we living? In fact, as we're putting our budget, we had men get together, uh, men and women this week, we got together and we discussed our budget. And one of the things we said as we looked at the budget, does this make disciples? Does this go to the kingdom? If it doesn't go to the kingdom, we don't need it. Does it move us to the kingdom? Are we looking at it like that in our own life? The way we spend our time, the way we do our things, so let's take a few moments and spend time praising God, confessing sin, and thanking God for what he has done. God, we thank you for your word. You've given us your word that we don't have to guess who you are. We might not understand everything. And while your word reveals you, surely we could read it for a lifetime and still not understand everything. But God, I thank you. I praise you that we don't have to guess who you are. We don't have to guess what you have done for us. And we don't have to guess about the resurrection. You have made some things abundantly clear in your word. Jesus comes and says he is the resurrection. And God, if we believe in your son Jesus, we know that we have life everlasting as your children. 
God, help us to know that. I pray that as a church, we know that. I pray that as we plan budgets, as we plan missions, as we do anything that we do as a church, it is built upon the fact that we have a hope that we are to live with you forever. God, I pray for us who are here. If anyone is not here, I pray that they would trust in you now. For those that who are here, Lord, help us to better understand the certainty that we have in the resurrection. God, may we be gripped by it. May your spirit work in us that whatever we might be holding on to tightly in this world, you would be loosening our fingers to. That we would offer all things to you because you are the one who has given us life. And that, God, we know you give things and that you use the things that you've given us for the expansion of your kingdom. So may everything we have be used for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Any questions today, just because uh, we did baptisms and everything. And, um, but if you, if you texted in a question, I'll answer that. Um, but I want to direct yourself. You know what's really cool about that song? It is written. That's why we believe it. It's not because we, we feel it. It's not because we made it up. It's because it's written. And that's why we love it. And that's where we have the certainty in Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to pray. We're dismissed. And I just want, um, as we go out, remember the certainty that we have in the resurrection. It's not built, built upon our mind, our strength. It's built upon God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything you have done for us. We understand it comes to us all by grace through faith. And there is nothing that we do to earn it, to prove it. But by your power, you make us worthy to live in such a way that pleases you and honors you. And so, God, I pray that as we go out, we live in a way that honors you. And we know that that's what your spirit is doing in us. So, Lord, as a church, as individuals, as families, let us be those who live in light of the resurrection, of the fact that you are the God of the living because you are the living God. Lord, we love you. Be with us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful day.